0: All right, if you would open your word to Exodus chapter 25, as Bill said, we are venturing into the tabernacle, and today my intention is to, I don't know, blow the dust off of a topic that comes to life in VBS settings, and then the rest of our lives we try and remember. So the tabernacle... what was in the tabernacle again? And what did some of those things mean? There was a bunch of really strange practices in this place. Uh, well, let's get familiar with the tabernacle today. I, I want to I put the value on the tabernacle that God places on what he's trying to reveal to us through the tabernacle. So this is not just going to be, huh, I finally figured out what all the furniture is about. Now we're going to do that over some time here. But let's just read the first nine verses in Exodus chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel that they take from me a contribution. From every man whose heart moves him, you shall receive the contribution from me. And this is the contribution that you will receive from them, gold, silver, and bronze, Blue and purple, scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for the anointing oil and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting for the ephod and for the breastpiece, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Well, Father, we are reminded again whenever we look into your word where there are so many things that you could have preserved for us, so many things you could have written down And held in a sacred place for us to learn from. But Lord, what's not said perhaps highlights all the more what is. And so today, Lord, we venture into you preserving this revelation about the tabernacle. Lord, it means something to us today. It's it's intended to mean something to us today. So God, give us ears to hear. Holy Spirit, lead us into the truth. Penetrate our hearts. Hearts, God, rescue us from wherever we've wandered this morning. God, I pray right now that we would be fully here, Lord, in this place. This is a holy meeting with you. And your word is living and it's active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces our hearts and the intentions of our lives. God, there's so much that you desire to do in this moment with us. And so, Father, we want to be fully here, available to you. Everything else put on silent mode god we want to listen for you and your voice in this place this morning in jesus name amen well the tabernacle when i say the the tabernacle to you uh probably everybody's got some kind of concept as to well, what is that about right well, here's a here's a a slide. We're going to go into some detail on this tabernacle. But if you were an Israelite, you were going to be introduced to this at some point. They, they had no idea what this was. They, this was not something that had been rehearsed or had been shown to them in bits and pieces. God is showing up. he's rescued them out of Egypt. And now he's going to reveal something. And he starts, we've, we visited the Ten Commandments. And, and my opinion is that the Ten Commandments exist because God is going to dwell among them. So the way in which you're going to do life is going to be informed by these commands. But the way you do life matters because God is going to be in your midst. You are going to be God's address upon the earth. And this is the tabernacle that gets created. And we'll visit some of these things later. But you can see all around the tabernacle. We'll, you know, in the future look at this. This was the centerpiece of their life. So all the tribes would gather and in the center of all the tribes in the land was this tent. And we're not going to go through the details of it, but you can see the altar, the laver, uh, the, the, the the lights, the incense, the uh, table of showbread, and in the, the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And over here is the priest. They're going to learn all this stuff. They hadn't, they hadn't seen all this before. So these first impressions are going to say something to them. Right? I just want to hit a couple of highlights here because... The tabernacle is intended to teach us something. And so God constructs it in such a way that it's going to communicate something about us. And and one of the things that you can't help but notice here is there's this barrier around this thing that you just can't wander in and out of it. Matter of fact, there's only one opening in it right here. So there's only one way in, and not everybody can come in. There's only a certain set of people who are allowed in. And then there's going to be a veil here and there's going to be another veil here. So there's two veils and back here is the presence of God where God manifests his presence on earth. But you just can't wander in and out of the presence of God here. God tells him to put up two veils that would keep even the priests from just wandering into the presence of God. All right, so... There's going to be a high priest, there's going to be priests involved, he's going to be dressed a certain way, and all these stones that are here are part of that description of what they're supposed to be bringing as this offering. So there's an enormous object lesson here. Now when we come to the tabernacle, I'm sure you're like me or anybody else, you remember it was taught in Sunday school class, you remember it was taught at VBS, but what, what relevance does it have today, right? It's, it's part of some old system, if you will, that, you know, well, that's, that's gone away, so we don't really need to pay that careful attention to this thing anymore because we're kind of done with this thing, right? It doesn't exist anymore. Uh, maybe not. Maybe that's not exactly how we should think about the tabernacle. A.W. Pink, in your notes there... In his commentary on Exodus, he says, We have now arrived at the longest, most blessed, but least read and understood section of this precious book of Exodus. From the beginning of chapter 25 to the end of 40, accepting the important parentheses from 32 to 34, the Holy Spirit has given us a detailed description of the tabernacle, its structure, furniture, and priesthood, right? That's where we'll be going for the rest of Exodus, seeing the details of this being explained and then being built and put into practice. It is a fact worthy of our closest and fullest consideration that more space is devoted to an account of the tabernacle than to any other single subject or subject treated in holy writ. Its courts, its furniture, and its ritual are described with a surprising particularity of detail. Two chapters suffice for a record of God's work in creating and fitting this earth for human habitation, whereas 10 chapters are needed to tell us about the tabernacle. Truly, God's thoughts and ways are different from ours. Now, if you recognize that what, we, what we're venturing into in Exodus 25 is going to continue on into Leviticus, into the first 13 chapters of Numbers, and then get rehearsed again in Deuteronomy, if you add all those chapters up, you're 50-something easy plus chapters all relating to this so it's an interesting comparison the origins of the world that we live in two chapters and then 50 something chapters remember god hand-picked the bible it's not like you know god inherited a book and he just is doing the best he can with it he's going to write this book he's the one who chooses to take two chapters to explain where we come from And then he takes all this space to explain something about this element of the tabernacle. Is it something more to us than just a a passing moment in the history of God and his people? Is it something more than that? Well, I I think so. And the the writer of of Hebrews feels that way as well as he communicates there in your outline several passages that reference this tabernacle that's given to us in Exodus 25. Hebrews chapter 8 Preceding this passage, there's been a great deal of discussion about this role of the high priest. There's this guy, the high priest. Well, where did they first learn about this high priest? Well, they've learned about it here in the tabernacle. And so he comes back and revisits this high priest. And he, and he speaks of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ being a high priest. But listen to what he says. And listen to where he draws his reference point from. If you have no idea what the tabernacle is, by the way, as I read Hebrews chapter 8, you have no idea what he's talking about. So it might be a little bit important that we understand something about this tabernacle in order to understand something of what's being said here. Chapter 8, verse 1 of Hebrews. Now, the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty. Where? In the heavens. A minister in the sanctuary and in the True tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, not man. All right. So what's that got to do with this? Well, this is the tent that man pitched. Is there something wrong with man pitching it? Well, no, he did exactly what God told him to do in Exodus chapter 25. He said, build this exactly like I'm telling you. Man pitched it. However, we're learning in this passage, there's another tabernacle. In verse 3, For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, So it's necessary that this high priest also have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. So what is this thing that we're staring at? It's a copy and a shadow of something else. Just as Moses was warned, he was warned by God, When he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, this is quoted from Exodus 25, the encounter that he had with God. See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. So Moses is going to see something on this mountain. He's going to come back down and he's going to build this. Hebrews chapter 9 verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. And then a little bit later in that chapter it says, Therefore... It was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, speaking of these bulls and goats and the blood, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. Now to appear in the presence of God for us. All right, so that exposes us to a thought. That there's this dusty old concept, this ancient practice where they erected a tent and there was an altar and there were sacrifices and blood was being shed and all these practices and rituals. But we've moved on from that, right? Or have we? Because apparently there's another tabernacle. Remember that term tabernacle has to do with God saying, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. So the tabernacle has to do with the dwelling place of God. And Moses is going to get a glimpse of this dwelling place of God. Apparently in heaven, there is a dwelling place of God. And that's what he looks at and sees. And the writer of Hebrews, by the way, 1,500 years later, after Moses has been communicating about this tabernacle, 1,500 years later, the writer of Hebrews is saying this tabernacle is still relevant because it reveals something about another tabernacle, a dwelling place of God in the heavens that Christ has entered into and he remains in this place. So this is, this is not a concept that should be easily dismissed as though this, has got, this doesn't really help us. We're, we're in the New Testament after all. Well, last time I think Jesus was in the New Testament too. And yet he is still ministering in something like this tabernacle. And you can see it in the heavens if you're Moses and you get some access to it. John Piper says, when God gave Moses a pattern for the priestly sacrificial system, he didn't just make it up on the spot for the Jewish people. He patterned it after glorious reality in heaven. Listen, listen, this is critical. If you don't hear me say anything else, just hear this one line. We get a glimpse into God and his ways when we ponder the priesthood or the tabernacle of Israel. When we ponder this today, we're going to get a glimpse into God and his ways, and it's going to be a wonderfully helpful, clarifying glimpse into God and his ways. Piper goes on and says, The point of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus Christ, God's Son, has not just come to fit into the earthly system of priestly ministry as the best and final human priest, But he has come to fulfill and put an end to that system and to orient all our attention on himself ministering for us in heaven. The heavenly heavenly tabernacle. The Old Testament tabernacle and priests and sacrifices were shadows. Now the reality has come. And the shadows pass away. So the tabernacle as we look at it today and as we're going to look at it in more detail in the weeks to come is going to give us a glimpse into something that's as relevant right now as it's ever been relevant. It's going to give us a glimpse into God and his ways. And God created this illustration and wrote tons of detail about it for that purpose. Right? How many guys when first time you read the Bible, you Moving along, making great progress. You got through Genesis. This is going great. Exodus, all these miracles and conflict and fireworks and stuff is happening. And we get to the end here. And you get to 25. And you start getting into the tabernacle part. And and it's sort of like you just kind of hit sand. And you just start to slow up now. And then you turn the page and Leviticus is next. (laughs) And you get about three pages into that. And you start wondering, is there another Bible reading plan that I can read? (laughs) Right? We, there's something about the, the details of this. Right? How many guys can read that part of the Bible and maybe get introduced to the idea that God is a God of details? Extreme details, wouldn't you say, when you read that? Right, here's, here's the admonition that's going to be given to Moses as he approaches God on the mountain, Exodus 25. God's going to say, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern. And listen carefully. I'm going to dwell in your midst. And there's a great thrill. And I want to go back to that point in the heart of God. That God has a desire. A delight to dwell among his people. And as much as that should give me some sense of the affection of god toward me that's not the only thing in this passage here is it because you have an exacting description god says do exactly as i say and build it exactly according to the pattern that i'm going to show you you know notice this is not a moment where God says, I want to dwell among you, but I'm going to need a tabernacle. Moses, just come up with something. I don't know. Talk to the people. You know, take a vote. Ask them what they like for this thing to look like. They can pick the colors, the location, the size. Tell them, tell them just to let me know what they like. That's not God in this moment. By the way... This, in the same passage, this is a helpful view, because some of us are are sort of, we've got this inkblot problem with us. You know those inkblot drawings, you can only see one image or the other, as either the beautiful lady or the old lady, and you're looking at it and you can't see them both. Well, in the same passage here, you're going to have an inkblot moment here. Because you've got God saying, let them take up a contribution for me, as we looked at last week. Whosoever's heart moves them, let them take a contribution from them. And then you have the same God turn around in the same context, moments, just seconds later, and say, but when you go to build this tabernacle, you do exactly what I say. All right, now, some, some of us in this room right now, please know yourself in this, because your Bible is missing pages based on who I am as a person, and yours is too. So there's a part of me that loves, oh, God wants to dwell with me. I love that, that God loves me that kind of way, that he wants to be with me. And I love that he gives me an opportunity, but he's not demanding. That's how God is. He's a gentleman. And he's not demanding, if I want to give, I can give. If I don't want to give, I don't have to. I I just love a God like that. Don't you love a God like that? Well, God's not, not having a schizophrenic moment here. When he turns around and says, now you build this exactly down to the details, exactly the way I tell you to do it. You don't miss one piece of what I'm about to say and what I'm going to show you. All right, does, does your God sound both of that way? Does he speak in stereo to you? Or is he just one or the other? Right, Because some of us love the exactness of God and we are just like distant from the affection of God. That's a problem on the other side. Somehow I need, to, I need to relate to a God whose affection is toward me in such a way that he approaches the undeserving, the unbelieving, and the unfaithful and says, I want to dwell with you. I'm going to build a place where I can be present in your life with all of its mess, with all the things you're going to do wrong, with all the ways that you're going to dishonor my name, I'm going to put my name right there in association with you. And I also need to hear from a God who wants things exactly the way he described them to be. You'll see why that's so important. Well, Moses gets i I don't know what this looked like for Moses, and most commentators don't know what this looked like for Moses, but somehow Moses gets I don't know, stick his head above the clouds in heaven, and he, and he looks, and there's this, this sort of Pattern here. There's this tabernacle thing, and he's up there for a while. I don't know if he got walked around, got a tour. Uh, I don't know if this just happened in his mind. I don't really know how this happened, but God showed him a pattern of something, and he learned and observed something deeply, deeply profound and informing in this moment. The human race and the nature of the created world is following a pre-existing. Pattern, And I don't want us to miss this. So I'm going to direct our attention to the fact that God reveals a pre-existing pattern to Moses. There's some stuff in heaven that God intends to manifest upon the earth. And you and I don't fully know that, but we know it's there because the Bible references it over and over and over again. Interesting insight from F.B. Meyer in his commentary on Exodus. He says, There is a profound lesson here. All our life has been preconceived in the mind of God. And every son and daughter is called not only to see his face and live, but to behold the plan and pattern of life, which has to be reconstructed in actual living, so that we may say with our Lord. This is what Jesus himself said about what he saw in the heavens and what he did upon the earth. He said, the son can do nothing of himself. He can only do what he sees the father doing. For whatever he does, that the son does in like manner. For the father loves the son and reveals to him all that he himself is doing. And greater deeds than these will he reveal to him. In order that you may wonder. The words I speak are those which I have seen in the presence of the father. Where did Jesus get his ministry from? He saw it in God. And then he did whatever he saw upon the earth. Right, there's something a little bit more being said when you and I pray that familiar our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Where? On earth as it is in heaven, right? What you see in this tabernacle is a heavenly reality becoming an earthly thing for us to experience. And this is true all over the place of what God has done in creating not just this tabernacle, but the world that we live in, who we are, the church as it exists, All these things exist in God before they exist in us. I think I wrote this out in your outline. How easy it is for man to lose sight of his true origin. His complete nature, purpose, and design existed in the mind of God before it was brought forth in the realm of this world. This is essential to how you and I approach all of life. So this lesson from Moses is a lesson for us, not just about this Old Testament tabernacle, but, but this is how God operates. And 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 I want to accentuate this. I, I felt compelled to accentuate this because you and I live in an extreme age of individualism and, and independence. Man today has lost sight of any kind of a concept that he comes from God. That God is the originator of this world and all that we're about. He has a definition for our existence that already exists. Humanity should never have crossed the bridge onto some independent island saying we will now self-define. We will now say what life is about. We will determine how we will or won't practice. What we will and won't do. What our values will be. Why we exist and the purpose for our lives. You understand that in God's mind, that's not up for debate. That's never been up for debate. It is assigned by God in heaven. But isn't it amazing today? You and I are witnessing today the redefining of some of the most basic stuff that humanity quite honestly hasn't even gotten around to questioning like it's being questioned today. Concepts like gender. Being male and female. What it means to be a boy or a girl. What it means to be a man or a woman. 20 years ago, I can't even imagine I'd be standing up here making this point. Right? Can you? That a preacher's going to take a significant amount of time to highlight the fact That we are either male or female? When did that become a normal idea? Listen, gender as it exists answers to a pattern. It's not just the construct of, hey, you and I just make this up as we go. Now that's what the world sounds like today in this category. The idea that, right, and you are are being told, I'm going to pick on stuff you're hearing today. In a couple of places. Hope you're not offended by that. I'm just trying to keep it real. This is not some Old Testament meaningless thing. So, you know, we're being told today as parents that you you, you, you probably the best thing for your child is to let them self-discover whether they're a boy or a girl. I'm glad a few of us are still surprised by that. But the the majority of people over time are going to welcome these ideas. Can Can I just tell you, if I read my Bible accurately, the Bible says that gender answers to a pattern. It answers to something that existed before you and I existed. We got created with gender as part of our creation because it reflects a pattern in God that already existed in the heavens. God said, let us make man in our image, male and female, Genesis says. So in order for God to manifest his image, humanity needed to be in genders, male and female. So when man comes along and says, hey, you know what, I'm I'm, I'm not accepting that," that. There is an existing pattern that you and I are rejecting when we do that. our culture is filled with a debate about marriage and what marriage is to be. Listen, listen, marriage already has a pattern. Marriage on earth answers to a marriage pattern in heaven. It already exists. This is not up for grabs. We don't get to redefine this stuff because all of creation comes from the creator, right? So whatever he mandated was supposed to take place. That's what governs us. And so marriage, it's not a franchise that you and I can determine to do whatever we want with it. Man, even people that work for McDonald's know that. Right? When, you know, you don't get to paint your McDonald's. You know, I got my own McDonald's. I'm going to paint it green. You know, you don't get to paint McDonald's green. It's going to be yellow as long as you own it because you got the rights to that McDonald's from the franchise owner. But when you and I come to marriage... The owner of marriage, the one who originated it, he created a pattern. That pattern involves certain things. It involves male and female in God's plan. It involves procreation. It involves companionship. It involves relationship that will manage the world God has governed. So there's a mission to what God created in marriage. There is a God-given diversity in marriage. And and you want to know why you have marriage problems? Because your spouse dares to be different than you. And you know what? Until you recognize that your marriage answers to a pattern that God created, you will fight that diversity. You will hate those differences. You will go to war with each other. You will tear down the other person because they dare to be different than you. And, and the biggest source of that difference is male and female. <laughs> Men are one way and women are a different way. And you put them together and all of a sudden this whole marriage thing sounds like a bad idea. <laughs> but but it's, it's God's idea. Our, our marriages answer to God. They answer to the pattern God has created. Right, So when the Bible speaks about your marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 and Paul suddenly shifts gears and he says, oh, but actually, I know I'm describing your marriage and this one flesh relationship between you and your spouse, but I'm actually talking about Christ and the church. Oh, really? So our marriage is a revelation of a pre-existing pattern, something God had in mind in heaven. So my marriage answers to that. It doesn't answer to whatever I want to make it today. And marriage travels through all kinds of lands. It's new and exciting, and it's old and boring, and it'll be all those things in your life. It'll be full of adventure and it'll be full of tragedy. And in that moment, it still answers to God's pattern. So what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with your marriage? You going to stick with it? You you going to trade it in? <laughs> get an upgrade, quit, just stay, just stay morally bound to it but, but not affectionately bound to it, right? We saw that the generation that came before us was more likely to, two generations I should say, before us was more likely to do that, right? Many of us can remember parents and grandparents who just didn't have a good marriage but they just stayed together, just stuck it out. It's just what they did. Okay, that answers to a pattern and that doesn't look like the pattern, <laughs> Doesn't look like Christ loving his church and the relationship that's there. What about good and evil? You know, good and evil answers to a pattern? Modern mistake. Good and evil are moral cultural constructs. So, therefore, what was evil years ago is now okay, right? Because we've changed and we've evolved and we're in a, we understand some things differently. Those people were so primitive back then. Those ideas about evil. That, that's not evil. Uh, listen, good and evil answers to a pattern. Right? That pattern has always existed for man. When, when Adam and Eve emerge and they're put into the garden, there is a tree that they are told not to eat of, Right? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It already exists. There's already a definition, a pattern from God about what is good and what is evil. Now, now, don't be confused by something. Sometimes what we call good and evil that does change from culture to culture never was good or evil to start with, right? Hair length, you know. Listen, if, if you are like somebody, you know, I grew up where you, you just... It, just covered your ears for some reason whatever God had in mind your ears were not supposed to be exposed and so as a kid the first thing I wanted to fight for was long hair you know I'm child of the 60s and 70s influence I I wanted long hair well you know long hair that's wrong (laughs) right there was this sense that that's just there's just something wrong with long hair uh I'm not sure we're actually talking about good and evil. We're talking about some element of cultural construct there. But there are concepts in God of what is good and what is evil. And that doesn't transfer differently from one culture to the next or one time zone to the next. It existed all the way back in the garden. And we answer to that whether we realize it or not. The tabernacle is is a place where God met with His people, where His people fellowshiped with one another and with Him. Uh, the church is that place today. The church answers to a pattern. You and I don't get to reinvent the church today. We don't get to say what we'd like for it to be. We'd like to tweak it this way, change some of the concepts about it, change its message, orient worship differently. Listen, everything about the church answers to an existing pattern. And this is vitally important because you and I are living our lives out of some kind of pattern today. And God gives a pattern to his people your outline, I said, this is what is at the heart of whether something is sin or not. Does it follow the pattern that God ordained for it to have? How do you know whether something is sin or not? That word sin, it, it can be translated in a, in a certain sense of that word, that sin is missing the mark. So when I pick my life up and I go to use it and I go to live it and I go to have a certain attitude. Does that miss the mark? What mark? Well, the pattern, the design, the purpose that God made it. And listen, that speaks to every aspect of our lives. The creator had something in mind for our existence. And in that, he is still saying, you build this exactly after the pattern that I show you. And that's what he said to Moses. It's what he says to us as well. Vern Porthras, speaking of this tabernacle, says, The earthly tabernacle was a copy or a shadow of the true dwelling place of God in heaven. It showed what God was like and what was needed to deal with sin. In this way, it symbolized what the Messiah was to do for our salvation. We may say it foreshadowed the Messiah and his work. Israelites had genuine communion with God when they responded to what he was saying in the tabernacle. They trusted in the Messiah without knowing all the details of how fulfillment would finally come. It's an interesting thing. right? Um, At some point God reveals a tabernacle that has as its centerpiece the innocent dying for the guilty. That's the centerpiece. So They were taught in this moment that one day an innocent one is going to have to come and shed his blood for our forgiveness. That's what this thing taught over and over and over again. Listen, apparently that's a critical thing for humanity to learn. Apparently, because God went to great lengths, a lot of details, and kept this thing in play for a long time. And then we learn that that's exactly what Christ did in the heavens with his own blood that was shed. So this matter of bloodshed, how distasteful it might be, is of critical importance. I, and this came to mind as I was reading the way he f- phrased that. They trusted in the Messiah without knowing all the details. I can remember one, uh, my wife and I, when we got married, went on a honeymoon, and we had dinner one night in our honeymoon with this Jewish couple from Philadelphia. And so we just kind of started chatting with them about what they believe and Seeking to share the gospel with them. And the one question I asked to him was So, what are you doing about all the sacrifices? You guys still, you still sacrificing animals? So, and they sort of had a, no, a non answer for that, except for that, well, they just, you know, we just don't do that anymore. We just don't do that anymore. But do you understand why we don't do it anymore? Because the ultimate sacrifice has come and we have put all of our faith in him. Not in these pictures of him, but in him. So we don't need to do the picture anymore because Jesus Christ is what all this was pointing to. But they didn't believe that. So if you are an Old Testament Jew and you believe in a Messiah, then you've got to do something with your sins. And you need a system of sacrifice how else are you going to deal with your sin? That's what this teaches you. Somehow, you've got to deal with your sin by blood being shed. Listen, when you share the gospel with people, this, this is not a small detail. This is a critical, critical matter. Now maybe you and I, well, that's kind of distasteful, that's unwestern and it's not technological. Uh, yeah, but it makes a point that almost nothing else you can say makes. There needed to be a particular Messiah who would shed his blood. And that's the only way anybody gets reconciled to God. You do this exactly as I say. You venture from exactly as I say, then you create a different means for people to approach God. John Piper again says, when God gave Moses a pattern for the priestly sacrificial system, he didn't just make it up on the spot for the Jewish people. He patterned it after glorious reality in heaven. We get a glimpse into God and his ways when we ponder. I'm going to say when we ponder the tabernacle, we come to better understand God and his ways. We come to better understand salvation because we come to better understand what God is like. How many of you know that the question of what is God like is up for interesting debate from all kinds of people? All right, so today I want to put in the ring of debating what is God like? I'd like to put the book, which became a movie, The Shack, in the ring with The Tabernacle. And I'd like for them to fight it out over what is God like? Because they do not present in any shape or fashion. Well, maybe a little bit. But there is not the same image of God being presented in these two places. And there's a reason why something like the shack could be so popular, because there's something about it we we would like for that to be true. Right? Listen carefully. Randy Alcorn is blog, Randy's a publisher and writer, he says, as of February 2017, according to Publishers Weekly, speaking of the shack, the book, right, the book, the shack, everybody knows what I'm talking about when I say the shack, raise your hand if you know what I'm talking about, I don't feel like developing this idea, right, book came out years ago, Um, the the storyline is a a man who has been through an incredible personal loss and tragedy, Uh, his daughter is kidnapped and murdered in a country location, they're out uh, in in the hills, I think they are, and they're, they're at like a camp out, and the child disappears, and there's this horrible plot line that has the young girl, little girl, uh, killed in this shack, and the the movie is about this man trying to come to grips with the pain and the suffering and the difficulty of that loss, and obviously, Anybody who's been through such a tragedy would be relating to a where, you know, where's God in this equation? So the movie transitions from human loss and tragedy to who is God and what is he like? And the storyline of the movie has God coming to appear to him in the form of three actual people who play, don't play the role, they claim to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So you're going to have human beings trying to portray Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they're going to communicate all kinds of things. And quite a bit of what the book does and the movie does is adjust bad ideas about God. So, well, the guy's name is Mac. He's the main character. And he's got issues. And he's trying to question God on some of these things. And most of the movie spends its time clarifying, Mac, you got that wrong. That's not how I am. This is how I am. So the only thing I'll say commending to it is it it does a decent job of portraying life in this world can be full of tragedy, unanswerable, painful events that you and I travel through. And here's a story. Here's an addition of that. It's not a true story, but this is a storyline that all of us can relate to. But the moment it begins to present God, it comes off the tracks terribly. So Randy Alcorn says, uh, this book has sold over 22 million copies across all formats worldwide. It's now one of the best-selling Christian books in history. I, I, would, I would raise a question as to whether it's a Christian book at all. Uh, I think it's a book about humanity. It's a book about suffering. It's a book about looking for answers in life. But, but to really be a Christian book, you've got to get the character of God right. right. Just make sure at least we've got some of that as a guidance. Uh, It has been translated into many other languages. When the shack was picked up for distribution by a Christian publisher and released at a bookseller's convention I attended, a huge promotional sign, visible 100 feet away, asked, what is God like? The answer, so they said, was found in the shack. The book wasn't about theology. That's the argument. Well, it's a narrative story about people just living life. It's not about theology. And he raises the question, really? Well, theology is the study of God. And there is no more direct and basic theological question than the one the publisher claims the shack seeks to answer. What is God like? All right, so this book is going gonna, is gonna to lay a hold of the heart of man by saying, doesn't life hurt for you this way? And you're going to go, amen. And then it's going to provide insight and commentary on who God is and what God is like. Now for any Christian... Just want to highlight this issue of the tabernacle. Uh, the, I'm just going to bounce the book off the tabernacle for you for a couple of times. If I just understood the tabernacle, just the tabernacle, I would be able to look at this presentation of God and say, that's not the God of the tabernacle. That's not the God of the tabernacle. Right? Just a couple of thoughts. And Alcorn quotes a couple of places in the book. It says, in the shack, Papa, who is the father image of God, says in the context of Mac bringing up God, pouring out bowls of wrath on people, right? So God comes and Mac presents his idea that, well, isn't this what you're like? You pour out these bowls of wrath on people? And this is what God the Father says in the book. I don't need to punish people for sin. Sin is its own punishment. Devouring from the inside. It's not my purpose to punish it. It's my joy to cure it. Now that that feels good to man. Because if I got a, a little bit of tinge of any of the guilt of my own sin, I'd love the idea that God doesn't punish sin. But I can't understand the tabernacle if I buy into that idea. Or the God who says, do this exactly as I said. So if you approach the tabernacle, you could not help but notice there's blood everywhere. It was a slashing and gashing, ugly mess. That little innocent animal goes in, but he doesn't come back out. And his blood is shed and his life is taken because of sin. So God takes and pours out, He does pour out His wrath. Now, what's interesting is, I don't believe God actually poured out wrath on those animals. I just think He illustrated what He was going to do to His Son. That every ounce of a righteous God responding to sin was going to put a penalty on Jesus Christ. On our behalf. That's what the tabernacle taught. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say. Hey you know that, that other. That dude. That high priest. There's a greater one. And he's come. And he shed his own blood. Unlike these. Who just cleansed the copy. And the shadow. But the one who would come. Would shed his own blood. Listen. If God doesn't quote. Punish sin, then the tabernacle doesn't need to exist. Just a pep talk needs to exist at Mount Sinai. Just God saying, hey, I get it. Life is really, really hard in and of itself. I mean, almost like should God apologize for that, I guess. But there isn't a need for a tabernacle where lives are actually taken in anticipation of being penalized for sin. It's an interesting thought from Tim Challies, who reviews The, the Shack. He says, I, I'd like to address one particular disturbing and underlying aspect of this book. As I read the book, I saw that from beginning to end, The Shack has a quietly subversive quality to it. The author very subtly criticizes many aspects of the church and contemporary Christianity before replacing the concepts he criticizes with new ones. He criticizes seminary education. Quote, Max struggled to keep up with Papa, to make some sense of what was happening. None of his old seminary training was helping in the least. He takes some shots at the Bible. God's voice had been reduced to paper. And even that paper had to be moderated and deciphered by the proper authorities and intellects. Peter, he takes some shots at Sunday school. Can you imagine? This is, this is the anathema moment, isn't it? And right, so here's this conversation of God. Try to answer some things for Mac, who's going through his season of suffering. And he says, this isn't Sunday school. This is a flying lesson. Right? This, is, this is real life. The church is a body. Comes under attack. You're talking about the church. This is what's being said to Mac. You're talking about the church as this woman you're in love with. I'm pretty sure I haven't met her. She's not the place I go on Sundays. Oh, really? You haven't met her? I thought you married her. You haven't you haven't met the church in the tabernacle, the place that I dwell with my people. Look, if you just studied the tabernacle, you know this can't be an accurate depiction of God. The church is individuals. Quote for Mac, these words were like a breath of fresh air. Whew, simple. Not a bunch of exhausting work and long list of demands. And not just sitting in endless meetings, staring at the backs of people's heads. People he really didn't even know. Just sharing life with God. Right, this book is interesting for people because that mode is attractive. We, a lot of us, we don't want to do group spirituality. We just want our relationship with God to be private and personal. So Mac finds his way back to this shack. He feels drawn there by something that God does, apparently. And he goes back to this shack for a one-on-one personal encounter with God. So God is going to reveal himself to Mac in the shack by himself. And and what's going to get criticized is all forms of relating to God with others in the picture. But if I just remember the tabernacle. The tabernacle has got groupthink all over it. It's at the center of a group. It's not an individual thing. It's the whole people of God. And they're all told where to sit. This tribe goes here. This tribe goes here. They were oriented around this tabernacle as the people of God. And then God scheduled... Times in the year where there were festivals where they would come together and they would together remember specific things about God and what he did and who he is. God scheduled this togetherness. So we're going to go backhanding this concept that the tabernacle teaches something quite different than the shack. And this wording is really interesting from the book. Book says, you will learn to hear my thoughts In yours, says Sorayu, the Holy Spirit. The character is supposed to be the Holy Spirit. You might see me in a piece of art or music or silence or through people or in creation or in your joy and sorrow. My ability to communicate is limitless, living and transforming. And it will always be tuned to Papa's goodness and love. And you will hear and see me in the Bible in fresh ways. Well, at least got an honorable mention there. Listen, just don't look for rules and principles. Look for relationship. A way of coming to be with us. Now, I'm reading that and I'm studying the tabernacle and it's as close to throwing up as I could come. Because how interesting, the tabernacle starts with God saying, this is how I plan to be with you. Let them take from me an offering. Let them build for me a sanctuary that I may dwell among you. So the God of the tabernacle says, I want to dwell with you, which is what they say. However, the writer of this book says, just don't look for rules and principles. God shows up and says, hey, there's this thing called the tabernacle. Keep reading. It's got a lot of rules and a lot of principles for the next 50-something chapters of the Bible. Now, having come from a place in my own life of not having a relationship with God, at one point in my life, I didn't know God. But I did know some rules. I did know something about living morally, do this, don't do that. So on the one hand, I, I get the idea that there can be rules without relationship. But something very interesting happens when you get really sloppy and crazy with this idea and you jettison rules. Because the second you stop doing this exactly as God says and you jettison all the rules, with the jettisoning of the rules, you also jettison the Savior along with it. Because it's the rules that teach every one of us that we can't save ourselves. Now, what you do with that revelation should never be, well, I'll just try harder. I'm going to keep these rules, doggone it, and I'm going to try even harder. Now that I know some of the rules, you got any more rules? No, the rules open my eyes. When they're exactly as God has said, do this exactly as I'm telling you, then those rules will convince you somebody else will need to do this for me. Because I can't do it. And you will open your eyes to a Savior who comes and saves us from our sin. But if you jettison the rules, you jettison the Savior along with him. Which is kind of what this presentation ends up doing. It's, it, feels, it feels good though, somehow. In the, in the, you know, I say that, I, mean, I actually have a hard time saying that. Because if you read the Bible a bit it no longer feels good, right? So having read the Bible a bit, having meditated on the tabernacle, having looked at what God says here, and you say, well, let's just do away with any form of expectation on humanity. Let's just do away with that. That no longer feels good for me because I understand that it was that feeling that drove me for a savior, And without that feeling, I just keep going my merry way because God's rules are all up for grabs. What God is like can be tweaked and turned. And you can have your version and I can have mine. So I just kind of dumb them down a little bit, adjust them to where I am, to where I'm close. I I think I'm kind of okay. What if the Bible screams at every one of us that you're not even close? You are horribly out of bounds and you've got no hope in this world suddenly the centerpiece of this tabernacle makes sense. The day of atonement means everything now. And the shedding of the innocent blood of the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, all of a sudden that's not negotiable anymore. And this idea that God's really not going to punish sin, really? I, I didn't get that from here in the scriptures. Let me just chase a, a quick thought here. I don't know if I can chase this quickly. <laughs> you and I live in a world where people who write books, people who make movies, people who publish articles, uh, people who design your clothes, people who cook your food in a restaurant, there's, there's all kinds of fallen people. In the world that we interact with. Should you interact with any of that? Should you stay away from all of it? I'm not trying to create a standard that says you should or should not see The Shack. Or read the book The Shack. Because most of us have read all kinds of stuff growing up. That presented fallen ideas. So I don't want to spend my coin on don't go see or do go see. I want to spend my coin on this. Know things like the tabernacle inside and out. So when somebody presents an idea like this flexible God who's really going to answer to man and his suffering, rather than a God who is presented in Scripture, the, the red lights on my dashboard start going off and I don't walk away. Listen, I don't know, maybe the cinematography was incredible and the acting was off the charts and the portrayal of human suffering... Reduced every one of us to tears. And, and I don't say that's not a bad thing. That's probably a good thing that I got in touch with all kinds of those elements. But when you walk away from that movie as a Christian, can, can you make sure you don't walk away and go, oh, that, was, that movie was great. Can you install a giant asterisk on whatever you would say about something like that? Anything like that. It grossly misrepresents God. As do all kinds of things in this world, but when you and I just say, "Hey, that was great," and you know, I'm I'm called to speak on behalf of the kingdom of God with my life. I post something. Of course, I don't post anything, but if you post something on a social media <laughs> setting, just remember, you, you're people can interpret that. This movie is as much about presenting who God is as it is a presentation of what human suffering is like. And so maybe you identify with the human suffering element. I think you should. It sounds like a tragic story that would, would rip up any of us to try and heal from that. But when God comes on the scene, is, is he the God in Scripture? And, and maybe what man does with God is turn him into something that looks compassionate. Because this version of God is going to look Compassionate. I believe the character cries at some point over this man's suffering i can think of no greater moment of compassion when the son sits on the cross and says father don't hold this sin against them can you think of a greater more compassionate moment when god himself has taken on human flesh And he cries out in anguish and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The God who existed in eternity feels forsaken by the God of glory. I can think of no more compassionate moment when the Son of God has taken my life on himself. All of my sin, all of my do it my way. All of my breaking God's rules. He took that on himself. That's more than compassion. He took my penalty. He took my punishment. How? how you want to know the compassion of God. But you, that doesn't come up. The most significant clarifying moment of the compassion of God was when Jesus Christ became one of us and took upon himself the penalty that we deserved to give us a life that we never deserved. That's compassion. And I didn't find that in the tabernacle. This is no small thing. This this is not something you want to forget from BBS days. This helps me understand who God is is, it'll help you witness well for who God is and why salvation looks the way it does. And so this is an important thing for us, but let me go back to this, this pattern that's here and raise a question for us, whether it's in presenting God, presenting salvation or doing life on a daily basis, what pattern are you following as you build your life? What pattern are you following? F.B. Meyer says The man who is accustomed to live in the presence of God, who believes that of every year, of every month, and of every day, there is a complete pattern. The ideal of his friendships is there, and he expects to be led from one stage into another. The ideal of his marriage, the ideal of his home, the ideal of his business life, the ideal of each summer holiday, the ideal of a manner in which he is to pass home to God. Each is there on the mount and he's at perfect peace, only desiring to build as near as may be to the pattern which lives in the thought of God. The same thought is contained in that assertion in Ephesians two ten, for we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God and prepared that we should walk in them. Listen, those are lively categories: friendship and marriage, workplace, home life. These are these are the places that we're we're all building something in these categories, aren't we? Mara goes on and says, Do not be driven by circumstances. Do not be shaped by fate or destiny. That's popular today. Do not sullenly follow out your own plan and scheme, but continually hide yourself in God. Wait your six days as Moses did and see the perfect pattern you are afterwards to reproduce. Listen, Jesus lived... A, a life after a pattern. He declared that he only did what he saw the Father doing. There was something that existed in the mind of God that got brought into the reality of this world. And, and you and I are called to live life that gives account to the pattern in the heavens. You know, listen, there, there are moments, and I, I get this especially in moments where there is difficulty in marriages and people want to give up on relationships, etc., where people stop praying that prayer. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because I don't want what's in heaven to take place right here because it's too hard and it's too painful. And it crosses my will. But you and I are called to live lives. Have you thought that in the same way that this tabernacle gets revealed because God reveals to Moses there is this thing in the mind of God that he is doing and he is bringing it to earth to reveal what he is like. Well, you know, I just described not just the tabernacle, I just described your marriage. I just described how you treat people. There's this thing that God is doing in the heavens and he's bringing his glory to manifest here upon the earth so that it can be seen. So in a way... Everything about our lives answers to a pattern. As I, you know, I thought about that and I looked at that thought from F.B. Meyer. I thought, man, that, that sounds a little exacting, man. That sounds, that sounds like a task. So every minute of every moment of every day of every year, really? Jeez. And then I thought, are you not doing that right now? Couldn't escape my own accusation. Yeah. Every minute of every relationship, of every moment, of everything I do is lived after some pattern. I'm not very original. I don't know how much credit you give yourself. But I learned a pattern somewhere. Your mom and them. TV commercial. Just seems common. Read it in the book. Whatever. I got some kind of idea. I'm living a pattern all over my life. Every day I wake up. And I live a pattern. The only question is, whose pattern is it? And so, let's let's be informed. Eric, you can come back up. Let's be informed that God has a pattern in the heavenlies that he is bringing to earth that makes something about himself known. And, And maybe none of us, matter of fact, none of us are called to go and work with metal or sew some of these things together and craftily work the wood so that we can build these things. We don't, we're not going to leave here today and go build a tabernacle so that the heavenly reality can become an earthly reality. right? That, that's not what we're called to do. But we are called to build some things that represent the pattern of God that are going to reveal what God is like in our lives. So let me, let me ask you two questions in closing today. The tabernacle as we're going to learn in the weeks to come is about meeting with God. It is about dwelling with God. It is about a relationship with God. Now my question for you because I think most of us if you're here today obviously you're you're in the God business in your heart. You've, you've come here because you, you want something of God to be happening in your life. My question what pattern are you following in how you relate to God? Are you, are you here today following the good person pattern? That's the only pattern I knew of. The good person pattern. You know, relating to God's about being a good person. So I'd get up every day and just try to be the best person that I can. And that makes sense, right? God's a pretty moral-sounding guy. He's, he wants certain things from life. So I feel like if I'm going to relate to him, then I've got to be about, you know, being on my best behavior and trying to do some things that will put me in a good relationship with God. And so I do the best I can. And, you know, that's my approach to God. I've got, I've got some great, great news for you. The tabernacle was never about good person approach to God the tabernacle in all of its exactness in all of its doesn't leave you room to breathe was about cornering you into trusting the one who would only be good before God on your behalf how about if I just tell you if you'll trust in this God revealed in the tabernacle you, you can get out from underneath the taskmaster of are you good enough You're never going to be good enough. Not for a God who's exactly a certain way. If you change the rules, dumb them down, you can make that work. You can be good enough. But this God in the Bible, he's exacting. He doesn't allow you to bend the rules. He doesn't let you subtract one commandment from the ten. He doesn't let you do that. And that's not unmerciful. That's the most merciful thing he can do. Because if you subtract a few out and then convince yourself that I'm okay with God, you have just made the biggest mistake of your life. The best thing you can do is put your life under the weight of those Ten Commandments and find yourself guilty. And then look to what would be at the centerpiece of this. A lamb whose blood would be shed... And it would be spread over that ark, that mercy seat where God now diverts his justice to this lamb and diverts his mercy to us. Listen, you, you can receive mercy this morning. Give up trying to save yourself. Listen, you know, if you, if you could do that, you understand these chapters in the Bible, the Bible would be shorter quite a bit. Because this has never been, it never was a means for you to save yourself. It was a detailed description of what it was going to take for the God of heaven to save you. And that's still true today. hasn't changed. So if you're here this morning and, and your relationship with God, your attempt at being close to God has been about you being good. Right now, I'm going to pray for you right now. And you can pray to God. And you can turn from doing that to get a relationship with God. And you can turn to this turn to the God of the tabernacle who wants to dwell with you and who's done everything necessary for that to happen in his great son, Jesus Christ. Let's bow our heads together. Father, I can remember knowing something about you, even knowing about Jesus Christ and the cross and the resurrection, a lot of those details. But on a daily basis, my attempt at relating to you was based on me being a good person, or at least avoiding being a bad one. And I didn't do a great job. And then one day I picked up a Bible. Read in it. Lord, had I read far enough back, I would have come across a a living illustration that you created for your people, a tabernacle that you gave to them because you wanted to be restored. You wanted to dwell in them. And at the center of that tabernacle was the shedding of the blood of an innocent one. That one was your son who would one day come and would take away the barrier of sin. As we sang earlier in this service, the veil was torn. Those veils that you put in place to communicate to people that there is a separation, a barrier. One day and only one day, God, that barrier was torn torn when your son shed his blood on our behalf so that we could be restored to you if you're here this morning and you want a relationship with God right now turn from your own efforts and receive what Christ has done by faith tell the Lord Tell Jesus Christ this morning, you believe what he did for you. Believe that he was the Messiah who came to take away sin and to restore you to God. You believe that he tore down separation between guilty men and a holy God. And welcome him now. Turn from your sin and welcome him. Own your sin and welcome him. Say, Lord, forgive me all the things I can think that I've done and even the ones that I can't even remember. All the ways I'm guilty, God, cleanse me this morning. Heal me from my past. I turn to you and I put my faith and my hope in you, Jesus Christ. God's own son. And I will follow you from this day forward. Give, give life to me now. Give me the life that was lost by my sin. God, give it to me now. And lead me that I may know you all the more. let get you to think for a moment. If you're here and... you've got a relationship with God through Jesus Christ are you living a patterned life are you living a life that follows the patterns that God had in mind in the places of your life this God wants to manifest himself he wants to be known the tabernacle revealed God to us but so does your Marriage. So does the way you do your work. So does your home life. And so does the way young people respect authority. Communicating that God's authority ultimately is who I respect. If there's a category in your life where you say, hey, in this part of my life, it's just out of control. It's just, I'm just doing whatever. God this morning would you give to us a revelation you are a God who has patterns in the heavens and if your son came and his chronic work was accomplished as he gazed into heaven and he saw your glory in the way you were and then he brought that to earth and made that manifest God that's that's the life we want to live we want to see in heaven the glory of who you are We want to transfer that into our friendships, to our marriages, into our fellowship as a church. God, we want to see into the heavens. We want to transfer that pattern into our lives. God, we're going to live for some kind of pattern. God, make us a people who day in and day out we bring glory to your name and we reveal who you are. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys. Love you. you. Have a great week.